0: Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, the Word of God says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bringing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Uh, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And let's pray. Lord, help us as we look at your word tonight. Give us uh, wisdom in this important matter, and that you'd help us all to have confidence in your salvation and what it means to be saved, what it means to be forgiven, be redeemed, to have a never-ending relationship with you, not based on our goodness, but based upon your grace and your promises. So give me the words to say and give us ears to listen, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight we're going to continue a series that we've been doing uh, called Problem Passages Regarding Eternal Security. And so the question is, we want, we're trying to get people saved. We're trying to get people to come to faith in Christ so they can have their sins forgiven and go to a, a place in heaven. But how long does salvation last? Once you receive salvation, can you lose it? I know a lot of people that think once they get forgiven, that if they say the wrong thing, if they do the wrong thing, then they just lose it all and they have to get saved over again. Uh, And many of you know my testimony, for those of you that don't, very quickly, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, I rode the church bus, much like we have out here. A church bus came by and picked me and my sister up for the first time. She was nine, I was five, Uh, and off and on, we rode the bus over the years. My family didn't really go to church. My mom would send us to church and say, you need Jesus, and she was right. Eventually, I got old enough to say, well, you need Jesus too, and I was right, and uh he ended up getting uh, saved, trusting Jesus, and by that time I had four younger brothers and sisters. They all ended up getting saved and trusted Jesus, and God really changed our family. But one reason why we didn't go to church is because on both sides of my family, my dad's side and my mom's side, they had gone to churches as young people that say, if you're not good enough, you can lose your salvation. So you get saved, you get your sins forgiven, then oops, you do something, you say something, you cross the line, now you lost it. And then you get saved again, and then you lose it, and then you get saved again, and then you lose it. My mom and dad both came to the conclusion at different times in their lives that I'm not good enough to keep myself saved. If I have to to earn my way to heaven, I'm just never going to make it. And so they both gave up. They both gave up on going to heaven. They said, well, I guess we're just going to go to hell, uh, both at different times in their lives. uh, And... That really kept them, when, when someone would talk to my mom or dad about salvation, they're like, oh, I know all about it. But they really didn't know all about it because they had some false teaching that we've been talking about. Uh, and once my mom learned specifically, I remember the day she had started going to church. My younger sisters had invited her. My mom went to church on an Easter Sunday, and uh, she kept going. And I don't know if it was a period of some months. I remember her talking to the preacher about, but can't I lose my salvation? And kind of arguing with the preacher. and, And the preacher would show her verses and verses. And the bus worker that became a real friend to our family would show her verses and verses. And I remember one day, I was in the kitchen. And there was a wall between, the kitchen was here. There was a wall, and there was the living room, and then a dining room that connected both of them. And I'm in the kitchen, and I hear my mom say, I finally get it I'm like what's going on and she's crying and hollering I finally get it I finally get it and she picks up the phone and calls the preacher and she's crying she said I finally get it Jesus saved me and keeps me saved and that was a real turning point for her and her life's never been the same since God wants us each to have confidence that once he forgives us that we Stay forgiven, not based upon our goodness or our works, but based upon His grace and His promises. If you can lose your salvation, you will lose your salvation. Don't miss what I just said. If you can, you will. And it might take you a week to figure that out, and it might take you 20 years to figure that out, but eventually... If you try to live in that doctrine you're gonna to come to the conclusion with I keep blowing it I'm not gonna get this done I'm not gonna make it but thank God we don't keep ourselves saved Jesus saves us we don't save ourselves and Jesus keeps us saved we don't have to keep ourselves saved you can no more keep yourself saved than you could have saved yourself in the first place and it's it's important that you have that knowledge But there are some doctrines around that that make people wonder. And so what we're doing is is kind of building upon uh, a couple messages I preached earlier this year, 50 Bible reasons why you can't lose your salvation. And just in case 50 is not enough, if I can't show you 50 places in the Bible where you can't lose your salvation, then we're going through some problem passages where if you read them quickly, it might make you think, oh wow, maybe I can lose my salvation. Or these are the passages people use to say, "No, you can lose your salvation." Uh, the interesting thing about people who say you can lose your salvation is they never lose theirs. It's you always you always lose yours, but they never lose theirs. And I remember talking to my grandpa one time, and I'd gotten saved, I'd gotten called to preach, and he he had a, a Pentecostal charismatic background, and they believed you could lose your salvation. And he sit across, we sit across at breakfast, and He just told me the night before he was with a woman. Now, mind you, he's in his 60s, late 60s. He's with a woman that wasn't his wife the night before. He's smoking a cigarette. Paul, I'm worried about you. You Baptist, I'm afraid you're going to lose your salvation. And I look at him like, if anybody's going to lose our salvation sitting at this table, it's you. I was not with a woman last night that wasn't my wife. I'm not sitting here cussing and and smoking and all that. And I just kind of had a chuckle. He said, I said, if anybody's going to lose their salvation, it's you. He looked at me all offended. He said, what do you mean I'm going to lose my salvation? (laughs) You know, as he just didn't have any concept. He was worried about me, but not himself. And this is the kind of danger that you get into. And also, there's no clear lines about what you do to lose your salvation. So everybody kind of argues about it. And it's basically what I said. You lose yours, but I keep mine. No, I'm glad we know the Bible, that once God saves us, He keeps us saved, and He saves us to the uttermost. When you get saved, you couldn't be any more saved than you are the moment you got saved, and you will stay just that saved until you walk into the presence of the Lord. And so praise the Lord for that. But tonight I want to show you a passage of Scripture, we have looked at several of these, we've looked at second peter chapter 2 verses 20 through 21 Uh, we've looked at matthew chapter 6 verses 13 through 14 that's dealing with uh, forgiving others and some misconceptions about that tonight we're going to look at hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 17 and sometimes what people will say is well if you're not careful you'll fail of the grace of god and what they mean by that is you'll lose your salvation if you sin if you're not careful you'll fail of the grace of God. And that is a Bible term you see here in verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. So they'll say that speaks of losing your salvation, and so you can lose your salvation. But as you notice, the Bible doesn't say anything here about salvation. You don't find the word salvation. You don't find any synonym for the word salvation. Uh, And the Bible here is not talking about losing your salvation. I'm going to show you why. And the reason why I want to show you this is so you can walk out of here tonight with just a little bit more confidence that Jesus saves me and he keeps me saved. Now the warning here is for those who are not saved. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, you're not born again, you've never had your sins forgiven by Jesus, this, these verses are a warning to those, bless you, who have never been born again and who are in danger Of rejecting God's grace of salvation and let me show you this here in the scripture as with all scripture taken out of context the problem arises when you remove a a verse or portion of verses out of their context and then you misdefine words have you noticed that the devil loves to redefine words the Bible said in the Old Testament there would come a day when bad would be called good and good would be called bad do you think we're there have you noticed anything that's bad that they call good and things that are good that's called bad we're living there Uh, they satan has always given the wrong definitions to good words and now we're seeing that in our culture where people the culture is seeking to redefine words that have had the same meaning forever and they'll just give them a different definition So when you say a word, or when they say a word, they don't mean what you mean. So when I'm talking to someone about spiritual things, I'll often ask them what they mean by that. So they'll tell me a sentence, and I'll say, what do you mean by this word? Or what do you mean by that? And sometimes you find out that they don't mean the same thing you mean. And it's important to talk in the right uh, context and the right definition. And so anytime people misdefine words or they take verses out of context, it's going to cause problems with our doctrine. It's no surprise that the book of Hebrews is named after those to whom God wrote it. If you hold your place here and look at Hebrews chapter one, every book in the Bible has a name for a reason. For example, the book before Hebrews is Philemon. That book is named after a man Philemon. The book of Titus is named after a man Titus. Colossians is named after the city Colossae and the Colossian church, and so on. So every book has a reason for its title, and the book of Hebrews, the the Bible gives us the reason for the title. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry or various times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the Father's by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son and so who were the fathers these were the the hebrews of the old testament so the reason why this book is called hebrews is because god is inspiring this book being written to the hebrew christians now the theme of the book of hebrews is jesus is better So if you ever want to know what Hebrews is about, it's Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what? Yes. He's just better. He's better than everything. But specifically, the book of Hebrews says Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than Melchizedek, an Old Testament figure. Jesus is better than animal sacrifices. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the priesthood. So the theme is Jesus is better. And the audience that he was speaking to were the Hebrews. And the reason is many Hebrews had trusted Christ. So at the time of the New Testament, the book of Acts chronicles the growth of the new church. Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, Matthew chapter 10, Uh, upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church. We find people in the book of of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, those that got saved were added to the church, and the book of Acts chronicles the growth of the first churches and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. As the gospel spread, Jews got saved, Hebrews got saved, and Gentiles got saved, which was a big deal because the Jews didn't like the Gentiles and the Gentiles didn't like the Jews. And that's why you find books like Ephesians and Galatians talking about there is no difference anymore. That in Christ, Jews and Gentiles come together. The book of Romans spends some time talking about the relationship now between the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ. And let me just say that there are people in our world trying to divide us today. There are people trying to divide us on, on race and color and finances and areas of, of the, the geography of our nation and uh, politics. They're seeking everything they can do to divide us. But listen, dear friend, if you've trusted Christ, you're part of the family of God. And we have much more in common than we have in indifference. In And God wants His people to be at peace. The United States of America was in large part united because it was founded as a Christian nation on Christian principles filled with people that accepted Bible truth. Even if they weren't all uh, Christians, as, as we would say, many of them accepted Bible truth. And even today, in this a postmodern world, over 83% of all Americans say they believe in God. Now, you wouldn't know that watching TV, would you? You wouldn't know that, know that listening to academia. But the truth is, much of what united America was a, a culture, an underlying Christian culture that taught people Christ is better, Christ is stronger than our differences. And I think that's a message that still needs to be taught today. So many Hebrews had trusted Christ and many Gentiles had trusted Christ. Yet there were also some Hebrews that were going to church that hadn't trusted Christ yet. They were hanging around Christians. They, they saw the virtue in Christianity. They saw the changed lives. I'm sure Many of them remembered Jesus. Some of them would have seen Jesus heal the sick and make the lame to walk and raise the dead. They would have been there. Some of them would have been there when Jesus died and they would have been there three days later when the tomb was empty. And by the way, the resurrection didn't happen in a corner, the Bible says. These things were open. The resurrected Christ stayed on on earth making appearances for 40 days. At one time, he met with over 500 Christians at one point. People saw Jesus before he, while He walked the earth, they watched Him die, they watched Him in a resurrected body, and the whole world, that whole section of the world was abuzz with this idea of Jesus Christ. And many people had gotten saved, but there were some that were interested, there were some that, that knew something was going on, but they weren't saved yet. These Jewish people saw the work of Christ. Christians at a, at a time of, of heightened spiritual activity during the life of Christ and, and, and right after the, the ascension of Christ in the early church, there was a heightened spiritual activity. There was heightened demonic activity. There was heightened power among Christians to heal and to speak things in Jesus' name. By the way, in the end times, uh. That's going to happen again. There's going to be heightened demonic activity. There's going to be God doing supernatural miracles. And it's going to be fantastic. But people saw these things. They saw people healed in Jesus' name. And they knew there was probably something to it. But they hadn't given themselves to Christ yet. They hadn't believed for themselves. Perhaps they believed in their head. But they hadn't believed in their heart. They'd left the temple to attend churches, they were hearing the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit work in fantastic ways around them, but they themselves were not saved. While all this was going on, if you study the early church, the early church was persecuted from the moment of its birth. The Jewish folks had to tamp down Christianity. They tried to get rid of this thing called Christianity because so many people were being converted. Literally thousands of people uh, en masse were getting converted, and the Jews were, were trying to keep this thing called Christianity. They were trying to keep the lid on it. They threatened. They beat the preachers. They would take your land. They would. Uh, you would be... If you publicly announced Christ, you'd be kicked out of the synagogue, which was the Jewish social life. You could lose your job because uh, if you were a Jew, you worked for other Jews. If you were a Hebrew, you worked for other Hebrews. And and sometimes they would not let you buy and sell in the, the Hebrew stores. Sometimes they would literally have funerals for you. We used to have a man named Mark Schwartz, and if you knew Mark, he was such a sweet soul. And he had some mental issues, but... We love him. He used to talk like this. Oh, Pastor Chapman. He'd always do his hand like that. Pastor Chapman, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He'd buy a new Bible just about every week. I'd say, Mark, how many Bibles you got? He said, oh, Pastor Chapman, I don't know. I said, did you read your last one? Oh, Pastor Chapman. You know, he's just such a a sweet soul. But he was actually born in a very well-to-do Jewish family when he was in elementary school a friend at school led him to christ and he trusted jesus he hid it from his family for years but when they found out rather than suffer the shame of having one of their jewish children convert to christianity they put him in an institution and said that he'd lost his mind And for many years, he was given drugs against his will. He was basically imprisoned in a mental institution. And the only thing wrong with him was he loved Jesus. And dear friend, that's in New York City, what, 60 years ago? How bad do you think it was during these days when they're trying to keep a lid on this thing called Christianity? By the way, that's one of the great proofs of Christianity is people all throughout the ages have tried to get rid of it, and it's still around, uh, and it's a wonderful testament to our Savior. So imagine these the, the difficulty of some of these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians, but then some of them perhaps family and friends, they they were kind of... In the church realm, they were suffering some of this persecution, but they really didn't have Christ. On top of that, the church was not only persecuted by the Jews, but the Romans were happy to blame anything wrong in the kingdom on the Christians. Matter of fact, if you study Jewish history, one of the Roman emperors basically set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it years later. Uh, and The idea of Christians being thrown to lions and Christians fighting gladiators and putting them in the Colosseum and watching them get eaten. This was all part of, it's the Christians' fault. Everything wrong with our nation is the Christians' fault. By the way, if you hear the subtle rumblings, you're starting to hear that theme again in America. Now, it's the Christians' fault. You know, I'm not a Catholic, but whenever the, the Department of Justice put... Roman Catholics on the terror watch list, certain groups of Roman Catholics. That, that's wrong, dear friend. When they would say fundamentalist Christians, and fundamental just means you believe the fundamentals. It just means I believe the Bible, which would be me. When you say fundamentalist Christians are part of the thing we need to watch, because that's where the danger in America lies you got to understand the Antichrist, when he gets here, he's going to blame Christ and God for every ill. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. So we're just trying to put ourselves here in the context this beautiful book written to the Hebrew Christians, telling them, warning them. There's actually five specific warnings in the book of Hebrews, warning them about different things, but warning them not to go back to the the old covenant, the old Jewish religion, the emptiness of it, but also these verses here are a warning to those who would reject Christ. Let me show you a little bit more context. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. The chapter that comes before class is Hebrews chapter 11. Very good. Uh, And... Remember, the Bible's written in order for a reason. So Hebrews chapter 12 is actually a continuation of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. It details the faith and the testimony of Bible heroes, often just in a single verse. For example, look at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by the which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of the gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Of course, Cain killed Abel, but Abel's testimony still speaks all these years later because of his faith. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation he had this testimony that he had pleased God. This is a picture of the rapture that Brother Davis is going to be teaching about next week in Sunday school, Enoch was so close to God that God said, I'm not even going to have you die. I'm just going to take you to heaven right now. And there's going to be a generation of Christians, and probably this generation, where God's going to blow the trumpet and all the Christians alive at that moment are going to be translated up to heaven. That one generation of humans is going to get to skip death and go to heaven without having to die Uh, And that's going to be an incredible uh, event. Come next week and hear about it. Verse 7, by faith Noah. Verse 8, by faith Abraham. And there's several verses about Abraham. Uh, Number 17, by faith again Abraham. Number 20, by faith Isaac. Number 21, by faith Jacob. 22, by faith Joseph. 23, by faith Moses. And again, by faith Moses. Uh, and so on and so forth. Then we get down to verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, and as dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho uh, fell down after they were encompassed about seven days. 31, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not. Isn't that amazing that uh, God just tells us she's a harlot because he told us where she came from. But when she trusted God and put her faith in God, she wasn't a harlot anymore. And God can change the life of anybody that comes to him. uh, And we've seen that happen uh, over the years. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lions, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Verse 35 Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. There are people all throughout the years, and especially you read the, the histories of the, the Middle Ages of, of the Inquisition and such, where the Catholic Church was trying to stamp out churches like ours and they would literally say Conf- uh, confess your your faith in the catholic church or we will kill you we will burn you at the stake we will drown you and they did all of that but people said no i'm not going to turn my back on christ they would say renounce jesus uh, the, the romans would put people to to death and say if you renounce jesus right now i'll let you go and they said i'll never renounce my lord and they would die for their faith And you see this chapter 11 is just talking about this hall of faith, all these heroes of the faith gone by, and it's an encouragement to us. Look at verse 36. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Those are are with the whip. Uh, Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. Some were just thrown in prison uh, for years or decades. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn asunder, cut in half. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Sometimes they wouldn't kill them, but they would just make them refugees and kick them out into the desert and, and try to survive yourself and living in caves and off of whatever they can find to eat. All simply for naming the name of Christ and saying, I believe in Jesus. Look what it says in verse 38. This is God's opinion of whom the world was not worthy. <laughs> Dear friend, there is no sacrifice you make in this life that will not be mightily rewarded in the next. And God says the world wasn't even worthy of these people they killed and persecuted. Verse 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, it's the whole of faith, receive not the promise god having some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect so what's the bible saying some of these people died without ever seeing the fruit of the promises of god but they died believing and god will reward them but then that last verse is so amazing god having provided some better thing for who for us that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. This speaks of the lineage of, of how Christians can affect generations. Some of these people, their rewards are not calculated because they started a ripple effect that throughout the ages affected your life. And if Jesus doesn't come back, your good deeds and your service for Christ in this life can create a ripple effect that will affect people in the future. The person that won me to Christ, Bo Eichelman, he's been in heaven for years, but he is still gaining eternal rewards because of what I and the other people he won to Christ and influenced are doing today. The preacher, Pastor Ross, who started the church where I got saved at, he's been with God for years, but he is still today earning rewards based on what everybody that he uh, is has affected and so what this verse reminds us of is your life is bigger than you your life's bigger than you we live in a world that says hey pleasure is your god and if it feels good do it and you this world teaches you to sacrifice your future on the altar of the immediate and dear friend that's a bad deal you make good choices today And those blessings can follow you into the afterlife. And the choices you make today determine what choices are available to you tomorrow. Make good choices today. This is the hall of faith. Powerful chapter, isn't it? But now look at verse 12. Wherefore, because of everything we just said, chapter 12, wherefore, verse 1, Seeing we are also compassed or surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses, who are these witnesses? These are the saints that have gone on before. The saints that have gone on before have at least some awareness right now of what's going on on earth, and they are cheering us on. So, wherefore, because of everything he said, and seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Those are, not things, those are things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're things that are holding you back. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Amen? If you're going to run a marathon, you wouldn't uh, do that in winter clothes. It's not sinful to wear winter clothes, but you'd be foolish to run a marathon in them. You wouldn't have a weight belt on that you go diving in. That'd be foolish. But some people are going through life with weights, and they're like, what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it is it's stupid. You know, what's wrong with it is it's not wise. And so the Bible says, lay aside every weight and the sin. So we ought to lay aside our weights. We ought to, of course, try to live holy lives. The sin which does so easily beset us. Some people apply this as the sin of doubt which besets us all. The Hebrews has a lot to talk about. And some people talk about this as each one of us have a particular weakness to a sin. For example, I have never one time been tempted to shoplift. I've never one time. Matter of fact, my son shoplifted one time, and he had to go to prison. No, that's not true. Uh, he was, he was uh, probably two or three years old, and he was, in a trailer, uh, he was in a stroller, and we're walking through the store, and we're out in the mall, my wife and I, and uh, we look down in the stroller, and his lap's just full of stuff. Well, while we were walking through the store, he's just taking things off the racks and playing with them. And there were socks and everything else. And look at my wife. And I'm like, look, at my son's a thief. And she said, what do we do? I said, we've got to take him back. She said, what if they think we stole him? I said, well, they won't think we stole him if we take them back. And so uh, we, we took him back. I'm like, I'm sorry, my son's a thief. You know, and the lady's laughing. And uh, I've never had that inclination. But I do know people, and I've counseled people, that they have a problem with stealing. I mean, they'll steal just because it's there. They get a thrill from it. Uh, Each one of you have a specific sin that you revert back to. It's kind of your default setting. And you have to know what that sin is and build your life in such a way that you make not provision for the flesh to fulfill it. Amen? Amen? So, laying aside the weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Verse 2: looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, as we go through this life, we're running this marathon. We should keep our eyes on the finish line. We keep our eyes on Jesus, knowing that we've got a great heavenly crowd of witnesses cheering us on. So the hall of faith is continued in chapter 12, encouraging us to follow after Christ. Do you see that in the Scripture? The verses 1-3 through speak of living for Jesus with the view of heaven. Verses four through thirteen speak of our heavenly Father's chastisement of His beloved children. We won't take time to look on that. But a good father will discipline their children. Have to, have to. By the way, dads, the older your kids get, they need more of you being the disciplinarian and not mom. Amen. That's so necessary. Uh, don't don't be content being the good guy and letting the wife try to do stuff. Be a team. And ladies, you work with the... Every wife thinks the husband's too hard. Every husband thinks the wife's too soft. Start from there and learn how to come together. But it helps if you do it with Christ and a husband should be following Christ and do it in Christian love, in total control. You should never, ever, ever hurt a child. Never under any circumstance hurt a child yelling, screaming, hollering, just hauling off and hitting somebody. That should never happen in any uh, case. But a good father does set boundaries and provide consequences when those boundaries are crossed. Yes? And that's what God does for us. He goes on to say, if you can do whatever you want and never sense God correcting you, then it's probably because you're not his child. You're not saved. Now let's get down in the last couple minutes here. Long introduction, short message. Let me show you what we've got. In verse 15, God commands the listener to look diligently lest we fail of the grace of God. It's very important you understand this verse does not mean that we fall out of God's grace. That's not what the Bible says. You can't fall out of God's grace. Romans says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. The song says, grace that is greater than all of our sin... The issue is not that you can sin beyond God's grace. The issue is you can reject God's grace. We see in verse 14, if you look back to that, the Bible says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man should see the Lord. Some people will say, Well, holiness means living right and trying to live uh, without sin, which is a, a very simplistic definition Uh, But they'll say, since you can't see God without holiness, that means that you can't see God unless you stop sinning. But that's not what the Bible says. The word holiness here, holiness in the Bible is in two forms. One is positional holiness. When you get saved, God positionally gives you holiness in Him. So all those that are born again are positionally holy. Holy. But then the Bible says, after we're saved, we should strive to live a holy life. This is practical holiness. This is the choices I make every day. I should be striving to live up to my station as a child of God. And that means I have to deny this thing called the flesh that's used to doing all the terrible things that it's used to doing. Right? So the Bible's saying that without positional holiness, you can't see the Lord. So you should follow after peace and holiness. You should be trying to live as holy on the outside as God made you on the inside. And that's good advice for all of us. And then he says, notice that it's not the end of the thought. You see a colon looking diligently lest any man fell of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up in you Trouble you spring up trouble you and thereby you defile many Then it goes on to talk about the example of Esau to illuminate this truth the Bible is very clear that Esau was a Fornicator and profane now watch what happens if someone is at the verge of getting saved They've heard the gospel they're around Christians. They've seen God work, but they're not saved yet The only thing they have to do is say, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you died on the cross to payment for my sins, were buried and rose again. I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins and be my savior. In that very moment, God forgives all your sins, places upon you the righteousness of Christ, and ushers you into his family as a child of God. That's a fantastic promise. The only thing lacking of these people is that final surrender to just say, Jesus, you are the Savior, and now you're my Savior? But what happens if they stay in that place too long? What happens if they're right on the precipice of getting saved, but they hold off? The Bible says, Be careful if you're in that place where you're not saved yet, be careful. Because you might fail of the grace of God. What does that mean? You might push God's grace away to the point where you never get saved. Now whenever that happens, when you fail of the grace of God, when you reject God's grace, look what happens. Bitterness. And that bitterness springs up and troubles us and it defiles other people. Have you ever known someone who's really bitter? Let me tell you who the most nasty people on the planet are. They're people who grew up in a good church who knew the truth and rejected it. You want me to tell you who the nastiest people in the world are? People who grew up in a preacher's home and said, "I don't want that. I don't want your savior. I don't want your God." And boy, they get mean. They get nasty. You know why? Because they failed of the grace of God. They said, God, I don't want your grace. And watch this. When you reject God's grace, all that's left is hurt and pain. We can reject God's grace too when we go through struggles and traumas and difficulties. If you're going through a hard time today, Satan's going to try to convince you God's the bad guy. And if you're not careful, you'll push God's grace away. And the only thing left is pain and suffering for you and everybody around you. You've all seen this happen, haven't you? But look what it says that, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Fornication, of course, is sexual immorality. And whenever you reject the grace of God and you become bitter, it's very common to dive into promiscuity, You dive into sin trying to cover up all the pain and suffering and still won't turn to God so you're trying to get deeper and deeper just trying to cover it up but you can never fill that hole without Christ. He goes on to say a profane person that means uh, common or empty unspiritual basically as Esau. I've got the verses here Genesis 25 Genesis chapter 27 we won't take time to look at it but the story is Esau Being the firstborn, he had something called the birthright and the blessing. Well, Esau came back from hunting one day, and his younger brother Jacob was there making porridge. And Esau said, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And Jacob said, well, if you sell me your birthright, which was a spiritual blessing, that basically the birthright passed from oldest son to oldest son, and it carried with it certain blessings from God. You'd be the head of the household. You would get the the uh, largest uh, physical uh, transfer of wealth and and property and possessions. There were spiritual elements with it that went. And Jacob said, well, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you this bowl of chili. And the story goes that Esau so despised his birthright, that spiritual gift from God, that he said, I'll trade it for a bowl of chili. And he did. And God said, I'm going to hold you that, Esau. Because Esau, as an unspiritual man, despised the blessings of God, he rejected the grace of God. It goes on to say, at another time, he rejected the blessing. He would have inherited the blessing in verse 17. This was a blessing passed on from father to son. And again, it had to do with the the spiritual hand of God on the head of the household and the blessings for a lifetime that would come along with that. And because he despised his birthright, he also was rejected for the blessing. And look what it says in verse 17, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought carefully with tears. Basically what happened is, after Esau told God, no, I don't want your blessing, I'd rather have a bowl of chili, I'd rather live my own life, God said, I'm going to let you live with that. After the decision was made and God held him to it, Esau cried and begged and pleaded, but it was too late. And the spiritual truth here is, there is coming a day when God's going to draw a line in the sand and say, you've rejected me for the last time. So you don't get saved when you choose to. You get saved whenever God offers it to you. And you're in a place where it's like, wow, this is really touching me. This is moving me. I know that I need this. At that moment, you better look diligently lest you fail of the grace of God. Because in that moment, if you reject God's grace and say, I'm not going to get saved today, then you might reject Him the next time. It gets easier to reject Him the next time the next time. And you just might wait one day too long and spend an eternity in torment without Christ. One final verse makes the point of these verses clear. God is warning people against refusing Christ as Savior, look at verse 25. And we could go deeper into this, but we're out of time. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the New Testament, and to the blood, of, uh, the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, we're cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven this is a warning against refusing Christ so let me encourage you if you're saved here tonight you've there's been a time in your life when you've trusted Jesus sincerely you'll never be any more saved than you were that moment you'll be a better Christian You'll be more like Jesus over time as he sanctifies you, but you'll never be any more saved. And you can't just have that salvation taken away or accidentally lose it. But here's the warning. If you're on the precipice, you see God working, you feel God working in your heart, and you say, not now, not today, next time. You better look diligently, unless you fail of the grace of God, because you may reject Him one time too many. I have known people that were at the moment of salvation, and they said, I'll wait. And you know what? A week or two later, they didn't even care about it anymore, and they never wanted to get saved again. Don't reject the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that you've given us today. I pray that you'd help us as we seek to follow you and know you. Help us, Lord, to lovingly encourage people to trust you and to know you as their Savior. To, when they feel that conviction, when they sense your grace and you're drawing them to yourself, help them not to fail of the grace of